0: Hello, beautiful listeners. It's Rob with Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. We know you love the stories we tell, and we love telling them. However, producing and hosting the podcast is not free, but there's a way you can help. Find us on Patreon. Our Patreon members get access to exclusive content, early episode releases, and all other sorts of goodies. Go to www.patreon.com trrpod for as little as a buck a month. Every cent we take in goes back to making the show bigger and better. Thank you, we love you, and as always... Hold fast and enjoy the show. Gentlemen, we are gathered here today in Chris's kitchen to remember Kyle Graper, friend, compatriot, Co-host. Basement captive. He's not dead. He's just not here. Yeah, he's just not here. Whatever he's, we say, he's no longer with us. He's just out of town. Yeah. He, uh, he decided that he's going to Germany with his, uh, his beautiful girlfriend who loves him. Going to a nice part of the world with great food and just deciding to be a loser instead of... Hanging out here with us talking about rescue. Well, uh,
1: he's the fifth fucking clone that we've used. So, <laughs>
0: I mean, it's pull, not like pull a new one out of the Kyle vat. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I'm going to miss Kyle Epsilon. I, I yeah. am. Yeah, he's been a, he's been a good Kyle. Well, are we going to call the the one that we do eventually get to? Are we going to call him Kyle New? Mm, Kyle Prime. Okay, it's got to be Kyle Prime. I think. The ultimate Kyle. It worked for multiple man. Yeah, there's no mm. Kyle that can be more Kyle than Kyle Prime. Correct. Mm. Kyle Kyle Prime can destroy all the drywall. Now we're just talking about like Kyle Eugenics here, like we're <laughs> slowly
2: but surely we're, we're filtering out the things we don't want. Like, oh wait, uh, hey, oh god, we're turning wait. into those weird stones they blew up. Yeah. Well, Did I'm we watching. fix the f-
1: the squinty eyes this time?
2: No, we need the squinty eyes. Mm. We need squinty that's, Kyle. That's, that's the our, tell.
0: It's the tell. It's how we know. That's like, how oh, we know. We get Kyle. Uh, okay, like, okay. That's okay. how we know that Kyle's had, <laughs> Kyle's had too so, much.
2: So, if we
1: we the next one doesn't squint, that's when we know that we've actually got a mutated variant that yeah. like goes it's Like the all... Skynet. Skynet yeah. became self-aware. Exactly. Like, there was
0: nothing yeah. we could do anymore. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so much like eugenics in the 1920s, Kyle is on his way from the U.S. to Germany as we speak. Oh no. <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, I thought Wow. You meant, I thought with
3: Kyle Jennings I thought you meant like we were gonna cut his head off and freeze it. It's, well,
0: what, he do you, is, what do you think we've done with the previous four versions? Don't look in Chris's fridge. And and, and, That's and the he, garage fridge. Yeah.
1: Well and for what it's <laughs> worth on that joke, he will appreciate this. Kyle is a J O O
0: Fantastic <laughs> South Park reference. It's A fantastic South Park reference, but I will always remember more Kyle's initial response of but i I'm, I'm a presbyterian <laughs> <laughs> that Just was the greatest look
1: that was the greatest moment ever
0: so without kyle we are incomplete yet we are still these rogues and renegades welcome everybody i'm rob north i am your co-host chris miller
1: i am the padre michael ernette
0: and we are once again for the third time we haven't scared him off yet joined by keith volhoff from the thrifty whiskey youtube channel keith welcome back
3: Thanks, it's good to be a tag-along.
0: Kyle, you look a lot different, gotta say. Um, and much by, improved. Yeah, your, and, your paintball trip to the Poconos has not been kind.
1: <laughs> and might I just say that while we normally have beers and everything here, I want to say that I got this in honor of Thrifty Whiskey. Talk
0: about it, it's an audio medium.
2: <laughs> <laughs> We're getting there, he's setting the stage. I'm, I'm
0: sorry, I'm so I'm used to having to hurt a lot of cats I, here. I I got a $15
1: whiskey tonight, just to sip on this evening as we talk. It's Evan Williams. I'll have a pour with you. Okay, that sounds good. And I I think
0: maybe we wrap up tonight's episode with some tasting notes on the Evan Williams. What say you gentlemen? As somebody that works in the service industry, I am no stranger to Evan Williams. That is true. Exactly. It is currency. But uh, in the meantime, let's proceed with our story. So, in part three of our Summer of Sputin series, we are going to be examining the stories of our other key players in this drama. We're going to be spending most of this episode stepping out of our chronology and away from our focus on Grigory Rasputin and towards, people, and towards the people who installed him at the very heights of Russian imperial power. In the last decade before the world knew global carnage on a scale never before seen, and was rocked by a revolutionary wave that would finally and completely undo the old order. Now, these people were able to install Rasputin at the heights of Russian imperial power because they were the heights of Russian imperial power. Now, in addition to touching back on a little history of the Romanov dynasty, this is the episode where we're going to fully introduce Tsar Nicholas II and the Tsarina Alexandra, Crown Prince Alexei, and the rest of the royal family. Now, we're going to examine just what it was about the last of the Romanovs that made them so susceptible to the influence of a charming and exotic mystic and exactly why he became so necessary to them. Now, we're setting out to examine the qualities of both the Tsar and Tsarina that explain the decisions they would make later down the road, and how they would lead Russia and themselves to a dire fate. Finally, we'll be examining the reason why two colossal forces, unlikely though it may have been, collided and would form a bond that would become their eventual undoing. Now, before we proceed with the story, of course, let's give honor to our sources. As always, we have Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs by Douglas Smith. Rasputin, the untold story that has been told in book form by Joseph Fuhrman. Uh, we are also pulling from this episode highly from Nicholas and Alexandra, Fall of the Romanov Dynasty by Robert Massey, and for me, a lot of Nicholas II, the last of the Tsars by Marc Ferro. That is the uh, the French author, the French translation.
2: I guess how I knew. Guess how I knew he was French. I don't know. Because Rob hit that like a fucking snare drum, man. Yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's a symbol.
0: And once again, I shut up, Keith. <laughs> And once again, what do you want me to do? Just yell bang, 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 bang into the fucking mic? So once again, I'd also like to send out thanks to Dr. Alyssa Klotz, Professor of Russian History at, U- at the University of Pittsburgh, Dr. Janie Burns, Professor of European History at Point Park University, Dr. Erica Haber, Professor of Russian Language and Culture at Syracuse University, and from the U.S. Army War College, Professor of First World War History, Dr. Michael Nyberg. Thank you again for your expertise and your assistance in the research process for this episode and all of our episodes in this series. Gentlemen, any points of order before we get to the story today?
1: Um, yes. All the doctors you mentioned, Mm -hmm. if you guys are listening, I apologize in advance for what's about to happen.
0: We've been saying that for two episodes now. (laughs) It's just nice to keep reminding them and let them know that they're they're important. Yes. I I also (laughs) did, when I initially made contact with these people, I did also reach out saying, hey, would you be willing to help me out? This could also ruin your careers.
1: Right. Okay.
0: Luckily, I can send a professional email. I just can't host a professional podcast
1: well <laughs> what happens
0: what happens in the kitchen is, is beyond anyone's control
2: well,
1: well, and, and not only that right you, you're talking you're emailing doctors mm-hmm. you're talking in the kitchen to people that just are like not. history are, are, and are not. Yeah, yeah, we're not
2: <laughs> so I've seen a doctor
0: <laughs> I'm not a doctor but I play one on television <laughs> so how much pressure to succeed is too much? We all have our limit, and normally for people like us, the pressure to succeed and be good at what we're supposed to be doing for a living comes from our parents, our significant others or spouses, our coworkers, and our peers. Sometimes, though it may not be vocalized, it comes from the presence of the children we want to best provide for. But what happens when you have no peers? Or at least peers that aren't immediately in your circle? When your pressure to succeed comes from everyone, all around you in the entire country, from the lowest vagrant from the lowest vagrant peasant to your highest advisors and tutors what happens when that pressure comes from a family that has been succeeding for centuries and it's not just a matter of family pride or opinion but it's written down in the greatest chronicles and historical texts what happens when you're nicholas II, tsar of russia and the house of from the house of romanov
2: i mean according to the only religion they were allowed to have because of yes. the Tsars, god picked them mm. So there's a little bit of pressure there,
0: Yeah, too. a little bit of pressure, <laughs> too. Yeah, I forgot. Family... The,
2: the big guy's, not only, the big they, guys they, watch it. Family line,
0: society, the almighty deity. Yeah, right, that's a lot well, of
1: pressure. And, and not only did God pick you, but you're kind of God.
2: Right. You, <laughs>
1: yeah. Mean, yeah. But they picked yeah, him, that too. That whole Demi so. <laughs> thing that, uh, that, that all the D&D goth chicks get into, that, that's where you're at there. Yeah, you're somewhere between king and pharaoh. Mm-hmm.
0: So... We touched a little tiny bit on the House of Romanov in our first episode, but we really didn't have all that much to say about them. Now, the Romanovs were the ruling dynasty of Imperial Russia in an unbroken line that stretched all the way back to the year 1613. Now, this may not actually seem like that long of a time when some of the crown dynasties of Europe stretched back all the way into the high medieval period, but it's important to remember that the idea of a czar of Russia ruling a complete unified state didn't exist until Ivan IV, better known to history as Ivan the Terrible, was declared Tsar of all the Rus in 1547. Before that, what became Russia was a disparate set of principalities and duchies and wandering steppe tribes that sort of decided to band together to keep larger neighbor nations at bay militarily. Now, the Romanovs had become a family of boyars, or high-ranking nobles, first of the Grand Duchy of Moscow and later of the Empire of Russia itself, and had weathered a brutal succession crisis only to find one of their number, Mikhail Romanov, later to be known as Michael I, elected Tsar by the the Noble Governing Council. Now, the Empire of Russia had known less than 70 years without Romanov rulership, and it would never again know a day without it, at least until the very end of our series story. Through over two and a half centuries of rule, there would be ups and downs, good times and rough times, but there would never be a Romanov monarch under whom Russia didn't grow. Hell, two of them, Peter and Catherine, would be known as the Great. Not often you get a family line that has more than one the Great in it. Through alliances, martial conquests. I see Not that.
1: Okay. Look Don't do it, man. Jesus Christ, this Don't do is going to
2: be a long episode. Don't do it, man. It's going to be. A f- You're better than this. Be strong. You're better than this. We're here oh, for you, Michael. Lord.
1: I just, I just got a clean belt. I literally just got a clean bill of health from my doctor, and I'm supposed to be on some blood
2: pressure medication. And that's not sure going to help, tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so for, this is going to turn into just a, a full blown, like and, well, it, it, <laughs> there's going to be this steam coming. This off is of going the into like yeah. it, by the second half of this episode, it's going to be like intervention territory. Like yeah. Padre, there's a couple people in this kitchen just love the heck out of you. Tell you what, Padre, <laughs> I'm just, just love, letting you know. If just I... love the heck out of you. Would you sit down? We're like... not here for
0: us, Mike. We're here for you. <laughs> well.
1: I understand, and does somebody well, have the whiteboard? But yeah, we're here. the whiteboard's right whiteboard. behind us. Oh, it, it's still it, it, here. It's
0: still yeah. here. Kyle may have died, still, but the whiteboard yeah. did not. <laughs> well, I,
1: I understand. At the same time, please understand, today I might not get a mulligan. I'm just warning you ahead of time.
0: Well, today you might use the mulligan. That's why the mulligan's no, there. Exactly. It does, yeah. I don't want to tempt you, Mike. Is,
2: this is your freebie but, in Yahtzee. I don't remember what the hell it's yeah, called, but yeah. I know Yahtzee has one. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not trying
1: bonus. to go with a safety valve. I'm uh, no, I'm, I'm 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 stealing myself. I'm I'm going crane maneuver, wax on, <laughs> wax off. I'm doing. I, I, I'm trying to catch the fly with the chopsticks, <laughs> the chopstick.
2: and yeah, I, it's because there's a couple people here who love the heck out of you, Padre. Right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, now the Grasshopper's done talking. Through alliances. And now you can tell which yeah. one of us has had or been in an intervention. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> tip- oh, boy. Uncle Chris might have tipped his hand with that one. <laughs> so, through alliances. You act
1: like you're the only one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I
0: think we might be four for four on this one. <laughs> Who'd have thought we need Kyle to leave town to bat a thousand on that? Oh, so, through alliances, martial conquests, fortuitous <laughs> marriages.
2: What sp- in a sweet Christ was that? <laughs>
0: The dog just dropped something, and I think it might have been uh, the a shit.
2: The dog has a... Uh,
0: has his, the Statue his, his, of Liberty. <laughs> one of his
2: indestructible toys. And by indestructible, he mean he's like 30 pounds. Yep. I will it's st- a seagull. His name is Steven Seagull. Uh, 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 I, mean. I
1: like the pun. <laughs> I, will, I try. I will, yeah. <laughs> I will start my thought over again. play ACDC?
0: Yeah. I will start my thought over again. Through alliances, martial conquests, fortuitous marriages, simple explorations into areas where there were, in truth, practically fuck-all people living there anyway, Russia kept on growing and it had room to grow. At the exception in 1613 of Michael I's rule, Russia as a state was, geographically speaking, pretty much contained by the Baltic, the Ural Mountains, and the other nations of Europe. After 250 years or so, Russia looked much as it does today. In fact, it was even bigger. It had taken Finland from the Swedes, the Caucasus from the Ottomans, and half of Poland From Poland,
1: so they took all the Caucasians.
2: I mean, kind of. Most Mm -hmm. of, mostly, yeah. Yeah, I.
0: The because they took a bunch of stuff near and around the Caucasus, so like, yeah. You back me. You (laughs) back me into a semantic corner here, Michael, and I don't appreciate it.
2: (laughs) But but like, yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so the expanse of Russia was massive and varied, and Russia's claims over territory were even bigger. There's a reason that by the time of our story, the Tsar's coronation oath read, <clears throat> By the grace of God, we, insert name here, emperor and autocrat of all the Russias, Moscow, Kiev, Vladimir, Novgorod, Tsar of Kazan, Tsar of Astrakhan, Tsar of Poland, Tsar of Siberia, Tsar of Karanese-Turian, Tsar of Georgia, Lord of Peskov and Grand Prince of Smolensk, Lithuania, Volhynia, Podolia, Finland, Prince of Estland, Livland, Courland, and Grand Semigalia, Samogitia, Bolotsk, Karelia, Tver, Ugra, Perm, Vyatka, Bolgar, and others. Lord and Grand Prince of Nizhny Novgorod, Chernigov, Ryazan, Polotsk, Rostov, Yaroslavl, Belozero, Udoria, Abdoria, Kondia, Vitebsk, Matislav, and all the northern countries. Master and Lord of Iberia, Kartli, and Kabadon lands, and Armenian provinces. Hereditary Sovereign and Ruler of the Circassian Mountains, and Mountainous Princes, and others. Lord of Turkestan, Heir of Norway, Duke of Schleswig-Holstein... Stormarn, Dittmarschen, Martian, and Oldenburg, and others, and others, and others. That is not me Ooh, paraphrasing. I and wanna others. want to
2: take it to. And then you just have to say all those.
0: That's what drove Brian Wilson yeah. insane. The the others and others and others is not paraphrased. It's actually written down that way. <laughs> they just went and fucking. Yeah, they ran out of
1: paper. Yeah. <laughs> well, my favorite part of the whole thing was the like the the initial countries. Is, you know, he's czar of this, czar of that. And then they get, finally get to, and the northern countries. They listed off like 60. Yeah. And then, and the northern countries.
0: It's certain to think that the Russian czars had not had bigger ambitions than what they'd already <laughs> exactly. had their hands on.
3: What got me was all the Russians. Or all the Russias? All
0: the Russias. Yeah. Yeah.
3: How many Russias are there? You know,
0: I thought about looking that up, and I decided it just was better if I didn't.
2: I mean, Russian unification was still a fairly new thing. Like even like, not even all the Tsars had it.
0: Yeah. So,
3: DiCaprio just summed it up better by saying, "I'm king of the world."
0: Yeah. That is. Oh man, you you mean I couldn't have? It could have just not wasted all that time. So we already mentioned all of this previously, but I wanted to bring it up again because we think of what those centuries of because think of what those un, those centuries of unbroken success and growth and expansion and conquest do with regard of what's expected for the next guy to come along. Think of the level of pressure that that can put on the heir to the monarchy of Russia. So it was into this sort of pressure that Grand Duke Nikolai Alexandrovich Romanov was born on the 18th of May 1868 at the Alexander Palace, south of St. Petersburg. Now, he was the first child of Alexander Alexandrovich, the Cesarevich, or heir to the Russian throne, and his wife, Maria Dagmara of Denmark. Now, Nicholas's grandfather was Tsar Alexander II, a man known for heavily resisting attempts to reform the Russian imperial throne and reinforcing his own autocratic power. Now, it's important to note that Nicholas, though born a Grand Duke of Russia and third in line to the throne as the heir to the heir, was barely Russian at all. His last ethnically Russian ancestor was a daughter of Peter the Great who had died in 1728, and apart from her most of Nick's ancestors were German, coming from an influx of German and Austrian nobility into the Russian line of succession, and he was Danish on his mother's side. This also meant that Nicholas was heavily connected through familial lines to many of the other ruling houses of Europe. His uncles included the king of Greece and the king of Denmark, as well as having a uh, as well as having an aunt who was the uh, queen of England. It was the future Queen of England, excuse me. He was first cousins to the next King of England, George V, and to the future German Kaiser, Wilhelm II, as well as the future King of Norway, Hakon VII, and his wife, the future Queen Maud. And he was the first cousin of future King Christian X of Denmark and the future King of Greece, Constantine I. Now, he was a cousin, somehow removed, I'm still not entirely quite sure how, of no less than England's Queen Victoria, who was a major reason why so many of these crown heads were interconnected she by was, blood and marriage.
2: I, I heard somebody it's like um, aunt twice removed,
0: aunt twice removed, cousin twice. I've heard two or three different things. Like I guess they think going can be it...
2: cousin. I don't think you can be an aunt twice. Yeah. removed. So I think she is a cousin twice removed. I think so. It, it the, the the family tree, but
0: it's is... enough to where like they knew each other it's, personally. Yeah. It's, it's
3: not a family mm. tree. It's a family vine. It just keeps coming back
0: into the same. Trunk. It looks like they, those. It looks the, like those the, family the... circus cartoons where little Jeffy was just running all over the place and leaving a dotted line across yeah. every flat surface. It's it's really, really hard to keep track of. I I, did my best.
3: I I think if you did the family tree on Ancestry.com, it would just crash. It
0: would crash the site. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the Genghis Khan one. Yeah. Yeah. So Nicholas would have five younger siblings follow in fairly rapid succession, four of whom would live to adulthood because you couldn't be a Russian ruler if you didn't watch your family collapse into grief following the crib death of somebody in the royal line of succession. Now, from a young age, Nicholas began to be conditioned to one day accept the Russian imperial throne, and that began with a very cosmopolitan and comprehensive education, something that the young boy took to with vigor. Now, by his early teens, Nicholas had a reputation for being a quiet, book-smart, shy kid who was emotionally sensitive but had a keen desire to learn, to do well, and to impress his elders, the beneficiary of being tutored by some of the best minds in Europe, and rarely was he seen outside the palace library. His reserved nature put him at odds with the vision that his elders had for him as a future czar. His granddad, Tsar Alexander II, was hoping to mold a strong, decisive leader bent on solidifying the autocratic power of the Tsar for coming generations. He saw the Victorian age and all that came with it as a soft age, an age where everyone was so focused on reforms and politeness and diplomacy. Meanwhile, everyone else saw Alexander II as a lout, loud and boorish, impossible to work with or to form a beneficial alliance with, somebody who still very strongly represented the older Rushford side of Russia. And it was this dissatisfaction with the Tsar that gave Nicholas his first gore-spattered insight on how dangerous and difficult rulership could be.
2: I just can't believe that at one time in history, there was like a big oafish dolt that was loudly complaining that people were too nice all the time. And he was Russian.
1: <laughs> and his name was Little Nicky. And his brothers hit him with a shovel. He said, I'm from the South. The Deep South.
0: God. So, Alexander II had survived several attempts on his life in a series of bombings on both his personal train and several of his palaces, none of which were very well planned out, that were mostly carried out by a group known as uh, Narodnaya Volya, or the People's Will, a radical populist group who sought to overthrow the Russian autocracy and inspire a revolution by assassinating the Tsar. Alexander's advisors were troubled by this trend and begged the Tsar to change his practices and increase the number of police and bodyguards he surrounded himself with. Now, because Alexander was stubborn as a fucking mule, he refused to do any of this in reaction to the bombings because he believed it would appear weak to actually give a shit about your own safety, and so one day, on the 1st of March, 1882, when he was coming back to the Winter Palace after attending some military maneuvers, a quartet of revolutionaries carrying homemade dynamite bundles wrapped in wire and shrapnel, actually pretty ingenious for the time, attacked a convoy of carriages, slaves, and mounted Cossack guards carrying the Tsar. The first bomb detonated under his carriage, which had been constructed to be bulletproof, killing one guard and damaging the carriage, but leaving the Tsar uninjured. Despite pleas from his guards to get into another carriage and get out of there, Alexander basically said, get fucked, you pussies, and jumped into the street to direct the search for the bomber. But seconds later, a second bomb landed right at the Tsar's feet and went off with predictable results. In addition to mortally wounding the guy who threw it, The bomb practically severed the Tsar's legs and tore open his abdomen, leaving his innards spilling out onto the ground. Now, the Tsar was badly messed up, but he still had the wherewithal to order his entourage to take him back to the palace because he was going to be damned if he died in front of a bunch of plebs. Now, as bad as his injuries were, it took Alexander II what could only be described as an annoyingly long time to die. Many hours, in fact, as he held on stubbornly. Now, why this is important is that the young Nicholas was taken to his grandfather, lying there gurgling on a bed, spilling blood everywhere with his guts hanging out, and with his shattered legs twitching, so that he could say goodbye to Grandpa and tell him that he'd be a good boy and would become a good czar. Now, we can imagine what this would have that this would have made something of an impression on the sensitive young teen, and instilled a healthy sense of terror to go along with his guidance towards absolute power.
2: But he, this also wasn't the first time that something like that happened. No. I mean like culturally it, especially whenever it pertains to monarchs and things like that uh, the the last guy kind of has to tell you that it's yours now. Yeah. Like there's kind of an official thing to that which usually resulted in a bunch <laughs> of children watching somebody bleed to death.
0: It's somebody lying there going you're next, now somebody kill me. Especially like this, like,
2: this giant, larger-than-life yeah. guy who, like, out of
0: all the czars, may have been like the most fit for the job. He insisted on having a clean dress uniform put onto him when he got into his deathbed. Didn't stay clean for long. Yeah, but he He insisted on it. (laughs) He used to tear books and cards in half
2: for fun. Yeah. Like, just, like, impressively. Like, hey, watch this. Pull a pack of cards out of his pocket, tear it in half, and then produce, like, another one later, and then (laughs) tear them in half. It was like, look what I can do with my bare hands. Anyway, here's this tiny little kid that doesn't want the job. I'm going to explode in front of him. Yes. (laughs) Well, and... Now he can see what my middle looks like.
1: (laughs) At the same time, Keith you you'll verify this with me Ed, because we're mm-hmm. both civil war buffs. One of the things that we understand about this era of history is that the gunpowder, the, the the amount of explosive energy in things that were working went beyond what had previously been. So there's a difference between in my opinion, there's a difference between you know some dude gets hit. Some some king in England mm-hmm. gets hit with a bullet or gets hit with a uh, with an arrow in the chest. Henry the Fourth. Yeah. yeah. And oh well, yes. Now I'm dying in and this. And there's a difference between that and oh yeah, Grandpa got his legs blown off by like a ton of TNT. Yeah,
0: he's mostly gone from the ribcage down.
2: Right. Yeah these yeah. these were these weren't gunpowder like this was dynamite this was actual whole right. ass it's, it's, dynamite yeah, this well, wasn't this, is,
0: this wasn't black powder anything and, like, he and, got that,
2: and, and that's what I'm saying once we got
1: post Civil War we got real
0: well so yep. so Professor Klotz sent me the her translation of the for what amounts to a lack of a better term the medical examiner's report right. on the Czar oh he was. He probably had 30, 40 pounds of flesh blown off of his body. And he lived right. for like a while. About it's not 12 like, yeah. hours. Right. It's
2: not like this happened. And then he went back. He was like, "Oh yeah, uh, hey, Al, by the way, you're in charge now. Yeah. Uh, no, it's like the next morning. <laughs> All yours, Junior.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. Good luck
2: out there. Yeah. And then he just yeah, went back to the magical baseball field and walked into the corn. <laughs> no, it was no, not like that. He didn't walk into the... <laughs> blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Kill me.
1: Kill okay. me. He you know, have it's kind of hard to just... walk into the corn when your legs are over there. <laughs> and, over there <laughs> yeah, and over there, and over there, and up there. He dragged and, the and ragged husk of his body of...
0: into the corn. So, finally, Alexander succumbed to his ghastly injuries, and his son, Nick's dad, Alexander III, took the throne, which accelerated the pace of Nicholas's education on how to be czar. Now, this certainly outpaced Nicholas's comfort zone, and Nick, who was a student of the world and could see the trend away from absolute autocracies that was occurring in the West, was actually pretty uncomfortable with his dad's continuance of the trend of solidifying autocratic power at the top through, let's say, reverse reforms. Now, in 1884, Nicholas had his coming-of-age ceremony at the Winter Palace where he pledged fealty to his father and was given, at the age of 16, offices of various government responsibility, which I know all of us would have been great at when we were 16.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So... Nicholas, by this time, was still shy, but he got better at dealing with crowds. However, he was still lanky, gawky, a bit awkward,
1: and just- he went down to the creek and he wrote love songs to his girl, and he's all like, "Oh <laughs> yeah, Oasis is a great band," and
3: I don't like Oasis. <laughs> anyway, Actually, I can't stand the ball. Beatles. They try to sound too much like Oasis. Mm. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You are a horrible, horrible human being, dude. (laughs) Uh,
0: But Nicholas had also developed a nervous stammer, which seems to have been something of a nervous tick under situations of social stress. Now, however, despite all of this and all the stress he felt about eventually becoming Tsar, Nicholas was still being sent on official state occasions to represent the crown. One of these occasions, held in June of 1884, was the wedding of Nicholas's uncle, the Grand Duke Sergei Alexandrovich, to a German princess named Elizabeth of Hesse. There, at the wedding festivities... Nicholas's eye was drawn to a young girl, the younger sister of the bride, who kept stealing glances back at him. This meeting would be fateful. Princess Alex of Hesse, and by the Rhine, her full title, was born on the 6th of June 1872 in Darmstadt in what's now Germany, technically in Hesse, one of the principalities that would conglomerate to make up the nascent German nation. Now, she was famously, hap- uh, famously happy and good-natured child, the granddaughter of England's Queen Victoria, who called her, quote, too beautiful, a most lovely child, as lovely as any I ever saw. Now, she was, like Nicholas, deeply connected through familial ties to the various crowned heads of Europe. Her family nicknamed her Sonny to match her disposition, but as she grew older into childhood, she became very shy and melancholic, her manner at odds with her nickname. Now, this could be due to the fact that by the age of seven, she had lost two of her siblings, one brother to uncontrolled internal bleeding after a minor fall, And a sister to a diphtheria outbreak that would also go on to claim the life of Alex's mother. You
1: know, that's the problem with genetics and royalty. Diphtheria. Mm,
0: yeah. So, this would lead Queen Victoria of England to be something of a long-distance surrogate mother figure, and the girl would spend her holidays in England with the royal family and have all of her tutors chosen by Victoria herself. Now, she received a consummate courtly education and loved literature and music, with a talent for playing the banjo, apparently. And she was, <laughs> I, I, yeah,
3: I, I'm, I'm picturing this family tree with the banjo and it's just <laughs> sounding like, near, near, near,
0: near, near, near. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, the princess of Hesse and by Rhine. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And, but she was also deeply devoted to the Lutheran church because she was deeply pious. Now she was known for being tall with a crown of long golden wavy hair and had deep blue eyes that betrayed an underlying sadness. She would become nervous in conversation and would break out in red blotches. Now, looking back, we would probably turn this some sort of anxiety disorder, something she would share with another person she would become close to down the line. Now, as the sister of a Russian grand duchess and someone who was close to the Russian royal family, she would spend quite a bit of time in Russia as well into her teen years, which would pay an important dividend later. However, once she reached her teens in the middle 1880s, she was now of a perfect marrying age for the European nobility. Throughout the next several years, she received proposals for marriage from Prince George, third in line to the English throne, and Queen Victoria's oldest grandson, and also from Edward, Duke of Clarence, one of Victoria's sons, and I think, technically, Alex's uncle, who also happened to be gay, and who Alex rejected for being, quote, overly stupid. So so,
3: so she's her own grandma.
2: Uh, yeah, I think Tom Arnold sang a
0: song about that in a movie, didn't he?
2: Uh, oh,
1: no. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just going to say, and y'all, and y'all, y'all in Europe complain about West Virginia. <laughs> I
0: I don't... That's, that, that is a shaky leg to stand on, Padre. I'm not going to lie. So
3: and, and actually, it was Willie Nelson with I'm My Own Grandpa.
0: Yeah. So Victoria tried to arrange a match with Prince Maximilian at Baden and three separate Greek princes all to no avail. The great crown heads of Europe all despaired, fearing that this eligible young woman from Hesse may get to be as old as 20. Ugh without finding a husband. However, we We travel back now to the story of Nicholas. His clearly insufficient education of Zarhug continued, but his father either kept putting him in positions where he had no idea of what to do, and left him without a support system, or just didn't bother altogether. Alexander III was only in his 40s, and everyone believed that Nicholas still had a long time to learn the ropes. Now in 1889, at age 21, he crossed paths again with the now 17-year-old Alex of Hesse, who had come back to Russia to visit her older sister. Infatuated, Nicholas began to aggressively court her, attending balls with her, taking her to fancy dinners, and going out on long walks and ice skating together. Now Alex was smitten as well, but resisted his marriage proposal because marrying him would mean abandoning the Lutheran faith that she loved so dearly. Yet again, they parted, leaving Nicholas heartbroken. In 1890, Nick set off on a world tour, his sort of great presentation to the wider world outside Russia. He visited the pyramids of Egypt, rode elephants in British India, he was fated by the King of Siam in Thailand, he traveled to Japan where he received two distinct marks. One was a large tattoo of a dragon on his right forearm from a legendary tattoo artist who had a reputation for marking up various traveling European royalty. The other mark came when an escorting Japanese policeman named Suda Sanzo, for reasons still unknown to this day, swung at the Tsarevich with his saber leaving a a three-and-a-half-inch gash on his head. Now, a second swing was parried by the cane of Nicholas's cousin, Prince George of Greece, which is the most aristocratic fight ever now, and the assailant was tackled and arrested later to die in prison. The Japanese were aghast and issued a series of massive mea culpas, including the resignation of the state security minister, an official apology from the Emperor Meiji, and the ritual suicide of a lady-in-waiting from the Japanese court at the site of the attack. Now, I don't know if this was arranged by the court or this was a solo venture, I think probably the latter, but Nicholas cut his trip short thanks to his non-life-threatening wound, and Alexander III expressed his satisfaction in Japan's apology and punishment of the attacker issuing cash rewards to the rickshaw drivers who tackled the guy, and they made them honorary captains in the Russian Navy.
1: Could you see that in Pittsburgh?
2: Yeah. Like the bicyclists? I don't remember what had happened, but a dude that I worked with, um, I believe it was... It was an attempted shooting, something like the gun jammed or something, and a guy that I used to work with, Bud, Uh tackled the guy and kicked the shit out of him in front of a bus station, then everybody just started putting boots to this guy, and the cops had to go drag all the people off.
0: Mm -hmm. That's awesome.
2: Pittsburgh's blue collar town. We got some some pipe hitters in here, Padre.
0: Okay, just saying. (laughs) But so, yeah, so the Russian government made two Japanese Rickshaw drivers honorary captains in the Russian Navy, which would prove to be very ironic come 1905. Now, Nicholas, now with a bit... (laughs) I, I, am I wrong?
3: Were well, they I, part of the Second Fleet by chance? I don't know.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: I mean, they, they probably be... could have used those guys. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't have been any worse to get than get the around, people they had. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so Nicholas, now with a and scar and a sick tattoo, next encountered Alex in the spring of 1894 at the wedding of her brother Ernst in Germany. Now, once again, Alex resisted, but declared that she loved Nicholas and were it not for the whole Lutheran-Orthodox divide, she would be amenable. So Nicholas enlisted the help of her older sister, who was married to his uncle, and who was very fond of the young Sasarovich, to talk Alex into it. Now Elizabeth had converted to Russian Orthodoxy, and she was quite satisfied with it. And while we don't know what she said to Alex, we do know that it worked. Alex finally agreed to Nicholas's marriage proposal. He got inked. He's a bad boy now. Mm. That's what it was. That's like, true. Yeah. He's rich, honey,
2: and he has a dragon tattoo. He has a tattoo. <laughs> he has a tattoo
0: and a scar. He's a rebel, mom.
2: This I don't care what you phase. say.
0: This is who I am. He loves me. <laughs> it's not a phase. It is not a phase.
3: It's not a dragon, it's a dragonfly, and it's a tramp stamp.
2: (laughs) (laughs) To where Tsar Nicholas received a a dragon tattoo above the crack of his
0: ass. It's a great book, the Tsar with the dragon tattoo. (laughs) (laughs) However, a lot of people were against this match. Now, Queen Victoria liked Nicholas very much, thought he was a good match, but she despised Russia, and she despised Alexander III, and she worried for Alex's safety. Now, a lot of the Russian court wasn't wild about the idea, believing that, thanks to growing Russian nationalism, that Nicholas should choose a Slavic woman as a match instead. And both Alexander III and Maria Dagmara refused to give their initial blessing as neither of them liked Alex and thought her unsuitable for a lusty, aggressive czar of Russia. Why they thought Nicholas fit this bill, I have no idea.
1: So let me guess, Nick bought a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need no stinking helmet. It's not a phase, Dad. <laughs> You're not my real dad.
0: <laughs> However, something was about to change, something that would drastically change both Nick and Alex's lives. In the autumn of 1894, whilst on a long holiday at his dacha on the Crimean Peninsula, Alexander III's health took a dramatic turn for the worse, likely undiagnosed kidney disease. Now, knowing he wasn't going to live long, the Tsar summoned both his son and his prospective match, to the villa and received them on his deathbed once again in full dress uniform to inform Alex that he gave the match his blessing and she should become Nicholas's wife and to inform Nicholas that he was now going to be czar and the fate of the Russian Empire now sat with him and that he shouldn't trust any of the advisors he'd been told for years held the key to his success as emperor.
1: I have to ask... Did he still have pants or did 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 he they at least he has put legs. His, yeah he was well no, no no
2: they
3: put
0: pants on him think, this time or right do you think they just put his jacket on him <laughs> and just <laughs> rolled the bedclothes up to his waist They're
2: just like yeah that'll do This
3: is starting it to would sound be like... super
2: easy to put his pants on. So you just lay them lightly on top of like everything missing <laughs> from belly button down. That's true.
1: It's it's like
2: you you get
1: to the fifth metal and then everything is flat.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no this this guy was still relatively intact.
3: But this is starting to sound like the plot of Tommy
0: Boy. It is. Yeah, it really is. You're now in charge. So on
2: the 1st of November. I'm just saying, I don't think Nick could sell brake pads.
3: No, of course not. He's using them all on his bike. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So on the 1st of November, 1894, Alexander III died at the age of 49, leaving 26 year old Nicholas to be consecrated as Emperor of Russia that night with the 21-year-old Alex as the prospective Tsarina of Russia. Nicholas was terrified, knowing that he didn't have the chops to rule a country as large as Russia. It's said that he turned to his brother-in-law, the Grand Duke Alexander Mikhailovich, and sobbed, quote, Sandro, what am I going to do? What is going to happen to me, to you, to Zenia, to Alex, to Mother, to all of Russia? I am not prepared to be a Tsar. I never wanted to become one. I know nothing of the business of ruling. I have no idea even how to talk to the ministers. End quote. The funeral was held after the Tsar lay in state at the Kremlin for 18 days. Without embalming. Yes. and it just That would be stinky. Well, time to bury the sludge in the officer's uniform. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and while the wedding of Alex and Nicholas was supposed to be held in the spring of 1895, he had no intention of starting his reign without the one person who gave him confidence. So on the 26th of November, Alex and Nicholas were officially married at the Winter Palace, and the next day, Alex took her first Orthodox communion and was christened Alexandra Fedorovna. The occasion was weird, a little bleak due to the period of mourning in which it took place, with attendees often saying, quote, She brings misfortune with her as she comes behind a coffin. Now Alex herself wrote in her diary, quote, Our wedding seemed to me a mere continuation of the funeral liturgy for the dead czar, with one difference. I wore a white dress instead of black. However, despite the weird vibe, Nicholas and Alexandra had each other, and Nicholas had a throne. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes children, and with children comes trouble, and with trouble comes us taking a short break. We'll be right back. tired of listening
1: to whiskey tubers talk about whiskeys you'll never see want to hear reviews about whiskeys you can actually afford how about
3: something you can truly find on the shelf
1: are you looking for honest unbiased feedback about the whiskeys in your budget then join us on YouTube at thrifty whiskey here at thrifty whiskey
3: we do blind tastings of whiskeys that are $30 and under
1: bourbon scotch Irish Indian and even Canadian so catch us at thrifty whiskey and until then may the winds of fortune sail you
3: may you sail a gentle sea
1: may it always be the other guy who says
3: this drink's on me.
0: Welcome back. Before we get into the second half of today's story, here's our Estonia fact of the episode. A giant oak tree named Sarema, which stands in the middle of a public soccer field in the town of Orisara, has won European Tree of the Year six years running, every year since 2015. Legend says that two Soviet tractors tried to pull it out of the ground to make way for a public works project in the late 1940s, However, the cables kept snapping, and eventually the project manager was sent to the gulag for his failure, and the project was dissolved. They should have used the Ukrainian tractor. This fucking yeah. pull anything. <laughs> but the tree was left standing, and apparently still has cable marks on it to this day. Now, it hasn't yet won European Tree of the Year 2022, but it has been nominated. This has been your Estonia Fact of the episode.
3: That's
1: How is that s- tree as a backfielder?
3: Hmm. I was going to say that's got to suck if you're just like hauling down the field, kicking the ball around, dribbling, getting ready <laughs> to line up a shot, and then right
0: just in like face first into the tree.
3: Yeah, just like yeah, but it's macking in into ear, the so like yeah, show some respect. Yeah. Would yeah. that
1: be interference?
3: I I'm just wondering. It's it, ground it, rules. It's got to feel yeah. like hitting the goalpost in the old 1970s football field. Watching that is funny
2: every time. But how it took so long to think that you can move the goalpost. Out of the field of play, <laughs> but like watching guys hit it, it's funny every time. Every time. Every time. Yeah. Except when it's
1: Antonia Brown.
2: <laughs> uh, the the girl that was standing on the backside of the security, she worked at a casino. I cannot think of her name, but that's her claim yeah. to fame. She was like, I was in Sports Illustrated because <laughs> that picture was on the cover. A bird just looking at it, like what? Uh, <laughs> hell
0: yeah! So. After Nicholas and Alexandra's wedding, Nicholas set about trying to gain a grasp of Russian governance and building a team of advisors that would limit the damage he could do. Now, despite this worse workload, he and Alexandra sank into wedded bliss. Theirs was a love match, atypical of aristocratic marriages since the dawn of time. Now, despite the political and social expediency of their match, they still loved the fuck out of each other. Uh, Douglas Smith in Faith, Power, in the Twilight of the Romanovs describes it thus, quote, It was a happy marriage. Their love for each other was both profound and lasting and never deserted them up until their deaths. Now, this is not to say their lives were easy, for from the start, Alexandra chafed under the pressure of being the Russian Tsarina. Oddly failing to recognize that her position made her a public figure with definite obligations to her new people, Alexandra insisted on living a quiet life, relentlessly guarding her family's privacy as if they were some minor German nobles rusticating in a provincial backwater. Wurde bringt Wurde, the Germans say. With position comes responsibilities. Alexandra, however, could only see the responsibilities. That's what Spider-Man says. Say, that <laughs> Alexandra, however. I
1: going to say, that sounded like water drinks water. Yeah. <laughs> I just saw, I, 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 last week I just saw Marissa Tomei say it, and I'm, now I'm done.
0: <laughs> just, for the entire episode, you're just checking out?
1: No, 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 no. Just He'll be back. Of, He'll be back. Just thinking about Marissa Tomei.
0: Back to the quote. Alexandra, however, could only see the responsibilities her subject owed the crown, not those she owed them. Although, at the same time, Alexandra never once forgot the power of the Russian throne and refused to listen even to the slightest notion of political reform. Yet the privacy she craved only made her feel isolated, alone, and unloved. She could not understand why even the members of the extended Romanov family started talking behind her back, even though most of this gossip was driven by their being shut out of the royal's lives. This would lead to tragic consequences. As for Nicholas, he was too blind and too weak to either to realize the problem at hand or to make Alexandra change. He felt he needed her too much to impose. Alexandra's own brother once said, quote, the Tsar is an angel, but he doesn't know how to deal with her. What she needs is a superior will which can dominate and bridle her. End quote.
2: So? Well, I, I can't think of a better person than... Than her loving husband. Yes. Who people had doubts about uh <laughs> his his ability to rule because he liked poetry. Yes.
0: How very, <laughs> and, very Russian.
2: And he had a tramp stamp. And he had yeah. the tramp stamp right yeah. above the right above the crack of his ass.
0: <laughs> so Alexandra, though desperately loved by her husband, wasn't so beloved by the Russian people. Her shy and introverted nature was interpreted as arrogance and coldness, and among the aristocracy, she struggled to win friends. She had it's tro- a
1: good thing this never happened throughout Europe in like the like the last 300 years that we've seen. Ever. Isolated never. incident.
0: Isolated incident. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, Icelandic incident. <laughs> <laughs> she had trouble communicating, too. She didn't speak Russian. Nicholas didn't speak German either. But both were fluent in English, and they used that as their lingua franca with each other for the first five years or so of their marriage. Alex tried very hard and succeeded in learning Russian eventually, but spoke it haltingly and with a strong accent, which was always a source of quiet mockery at court. Oh my God, you didn't do that. What? He spoke it haltingly. That that was not intentional. (laughs) That was not intentional. That was just my own stupid mouth getting in my way. Okay. So, traditionally, as head of the social scene... Alexandra's job was to organize balls and parties, but she found herself shocked by these scandalous love affairs and gossip that characterized Russian aristocratic social circles. She would often cross off the names on invitation lists of ladies of the court who she found to be, quote, "...too interested in pursuing gallant young officers," giving her a reputation as a prude. She tried launching a program centered around creating a series of workshops where noble women would volunteer their time to teach poor peasant women how to sew and embroider in order to raise funds for needy families and received precisely zero volunteers from the ladies of the court. Her relationship with Nicholas's mother sucked as well. Russian protocol assigned seniority and rank to the Dowager Empress over the Empress herself, and while Maria Dagmara was accustomed to this, Alex wasn't, and the Dowager Empress was highly surprised when she discovered Alex's bitterness. She refused to relinquish the use of the crowd jewels to Alexandra, And a feud developed that got so heated that Nicholas had to intervene and issue an edict releasing the crown jewels to his wife's care. She caught endless shit for being A, a relatively minor princess in origin, and B, being a German princess. Despite the German roots the later Romanovs had anyway, the Germans were seen as inferior, rough, and unsophisticated, and generally belligerent. Fucking ironic. The whole nation of Russia on a rising tide of nationalism was Germanophobic and the aristocracy were the worst. She believed heavily in the divine right of kings and didn't see the need to court public approval as she deemed it unnecessary to secure the the public's love and reverence, believing that she and Nicholas were automatically beloved and feared by the Russian public as divine beings. Now, Nicholas's reign didn't really start that auspiciously either. While spending a year and a half serving the functions of state, it wasn't until the May of 1896... ...that Nick and Alex had their official state coronation as Tsar and Tsarina. Held not in St. Petersburg, but in the ancient heart of Russian politics of Moscow. On the 14th of May, at the Cathedral of the Assumption in the Kremlin, they were invested with the Articles of State, the crowns, the scepters, the orbs, etc., And in addition to being a massive state function, this also became a significant public holiday and over 500,000 people descended on Moscow to celebrate the coronation with entertainment, collectible souvenirs, and most importantly for the poor workers, free food paid for by the court.
2: Well, more importantly, it was free beer. Free beer as well. Which is why this was the largest they ever had. They offered them gingerbread and beer. And 500,000 people showed up. And also pretzels and sausages. Was, but this is how desperately poor... But this
1: wasn't German in any way.
2: Right. <laughs> they were so desperately poor that the 500,000 workers showed up because they were like, here's some gingerbread and some beer. That's how... This is the gulf in just what these people are worth. Mm. And they're like, oh, look at all these people. They're so happy and we're, we're here to celebrate. Fuck that. Yeah. They came for gingerbread and beer. Uh, we were promised there'd be uh, punch and pie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> More people show up if you tell us punch and pie. Now, at the largest gathering area, the Kadinka Field, on the outskirts of the city, however, there wasn't enough food and the distribution had been poorly planned and there wasn't enough crowd control. Now, a rumor spread through the gigantic crowd that the sausages were about to run out and the food and the food and beer were being distributed with commemorative cups with a gold coin in them. And a panicked rush ensued to try to get the rumored gifts before they ran out. The field included several gullies, and people were crushed and trampled into the depressed spaces. After the crowd eventually cleared, an official state count found that 1,389 bodies had been collected. This is like some Hunger Games shit. While, exactly the fest- while festivities were still carrying on in other parts of the field, with That's- thousands unaware. That there had even been a stampede. Oh, so it was a I who mean, concert? It, it, it's. I mean, this well, is no, bigger than Woodstock.
1: Well, what I'm thinking is, you know, you take half a million people, and you tell you tell the audience that th- there are three gold cups, or there are three cups that have. I don't know. Let's say it's a random rich number.
0: One, one gold quad. Yeah, one 20, golden quad. $20
1: million. Total. Yeah. And those three, uh, there's 500,000 cups up front. Go get them. Yep. That's what you're going to see.
0: Yeah. I mean, exactly this is, I like I said, this, this is. Was, this is the, one gold coin a,
2: would have been like 20 bucks.
1: Yeah. yeah. This is, I volunteer for tribute shit. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. But what happened, this wasn't even the fault of the crown. I mean, maybe the crowd control was, or whoever—it's the fault of who planned it. But the rumors and stuff that they just did, happened, yeah. right? Yeah, that they just happened it just happened organically. They didn't it wasn't have a gold coin
2: in them. Right. They weren't
0: giving that out. They were giving you a handkerchief and a cup. Yeah, but there was like here's a commemorative bread. hanky. Yeah. Here's a cup. Ooh, there's sausages. There's gingerbread. There's beer. There's beer. There's a gold coin in the cup. Oh my god! So, so we're, one, they're running one, out. They're running guys. out of cups. So oh, one dude. It's, it's one person. Yeah. started all this shit probably one yeah. person who said the wrong look, thing look what
2: I found in my cup
0: <laughs> yeah nobody knows who it was and then he
2: was immediately trampled to death <laughs> Yep.
0: yeah it's, it's also Keith Moon it's this also was, <laughs> this was also
1: no that guy got trampled to when, death by his own shit
2: our newly newly crowned Zarina uh, had heard about it she said that's it we're done yeah and everyone else said the fuck we are and they, start, then they went, and they celebrated. There was dancing. They were There was drinking and eating and all that. But she said, absolutely. She said, no, no, we're, yeah. we're done here. It's also estimated took They took, that they the, took the,
0: the carriages past the bodies, like past the carts mm-hmm. of bodies yeah. to go fucking celebrate. And Nicholas wanted to cancel their next appearance mm-hmm. and, and make a visit to the injured. And they yeah. said, no. Absolutely not. No, it's being put on by the French embassy. The French are our new allies. We just signed an alliance with them. Because we are going, Your Highness, to the French Ball. So, yeah, and it's also estimated that as many as fifteen to 20,000 people were, were injured that day. And there were people in that field who didn't even know it happened. So, Nicholas heard of the event, he was deeply disturbed by it, he, but he was insulated from further public statement about it by his advisors, and an independent investigation was carried out without his further involvement. This detachment was, as you mentioned, Chris, noted by the public, and it didn't take long for the working classes to start knowing the Tsar as Nicholas the Bloody. Now, finding popular support from that point forth would be a great difficulty for the Tsar, but he and Alex had another more pressing matter of state to attend to, the birthing of children, particularly a male heir. Now, this had already started by the time of their coronation. A daughter named Olga was born in November of 1895, but this wouldn't do for an heir, as the laws implemented by Tsar Paul I in 1797 forbade a woman from ruling Russia so long as any Romanov male was alive as a result of dissatisfaction following the rule of Catherine the Great. There is... So, they kept trying. Alex was soon pregnant again. But the coronation and the stress of the Kadinka Field tragedy induced a miscarriage, although this was never public knowledge... As the pregnancy had not been publicly announced. Another- well, I think
1: there's also a rule that says that if uh, your uh, name is Olga, mm-hmm. you can't rule anything. You're
0: never going to hear of a Queen Olga. Mm, I've heard of a Queen Olga, but she's she's a drag queen down in Lawrenceville. Right. So <laughs> yeah, she's, she's yeah. a bartender at the Blue Moon. <laughs> <laughs> Wait,
1: nothing wrong with Great that. Great gal,
0: right? makes a hell of a man happy. I, I, I bet. As far as it comes to ruling Russia, I wouldn't trust yeah. her. But. That has very little to do with her name. So, another pregnancy soon followed, and a second daughter, Tatiana, was born in June of 1897. Nicholas loved his children and was overjoyed, but the rest of the Russian court wasn't quite so hyped to have another girl come along. June of 1899 brought along a third daughter, Maria, again to the delight of Nick and Alex, but to the vast disapproval of the Russian aristocracy, who saw the birth of a third girl in a row as a terrible omen.
1: Could you imagine what would happen if this was on social media? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> could you imagine all of N- Nick and Alex's kids getting just fucking totally ratioed? <laughs> 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 Three daughters impeach. <laughs>
2: no, these, these weren't easy births no. either. No, like, no. no they they're, uh, they're, I mean, some of, the, the, some of these children were very big. Yep, <laughs> some, of them were, some of them were very early. Some of them, yeah. Um, like it's it's a wonder that this woman wasn't crippled. I know, it, yeah. because because of it has to pass down from a male heir, they have to keep having they babies, have to keep going. You,
1: you've only been pregnant nine months, or you've only been pregnant six months. I mean, this thing's like nine pounds.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so June of nineteen o one, I'm also detecting a pattern here with June births. Brought a fourth daughter, Anastasia. Well, when Nicholas's sister, the Grand Duchess Xenia, entered the birthing chamber to check on Alex, she saw that it was a baby girl and merely exclaimed, My God, what a fucking disappointment.
1: Ah, that's not true. I met her. She said it was different.
0: (laughs) Before fleeing the chamber in distress and saying no more words to the woman she was supposed to be looking after. There's no record of exactly how Alexandra reacted to that. So, other means had to be tried if a son was to be birthed, and the rising discontent of the Russian people in their czarina held at bay. It was two of Nicholas's cousins, the Grand Duchesses of Montenegro, the famed Crow Sisters that we mentioned in the last episode, Milica The Black and, Pearls? Yeah, the Black Pearls. Melitza and Anastasia, who suggested a solution. His name was Philippe Vachot, better known to the Russian aristocracy, simply as Monsieur Philippe. Introduced to the Russian aristocracy by a mystic from Paris simply known as Papu, who was the Papu, who was the director for the Advanced School of Hermetic Sciences, Monsieur Philippe was self-proclaimed doctor of Kabbalistic and Hermetic medicine. He had one year of former medical training before having been expelled for trying to treat patients on the side with, quote, psychic fluids and astral forces and the use of a magical hat. This is the best
1: part of living 150 years ago. You didn't even need a fucking business card. You just, just like, start spouting (laughs) shit. (laughs) Oh, by the way, I'm a doctor of, uh, like, that wall
2: and... (laughs) And here's my magic hat. Little (laughs) Caesar's pizza. Here's my magic hat. Here's my magic hat. Oh, yeah? Where'd you go to school? Where'd my magic hat go to school? (laughs) (laughs) Pardon me, monsieur.
3: You said the name was Papu, and I'm thinking, like, okay, he's a baboon with a staff and (laughs) holding up the
2: A hilarious cartoon bear. (laughs) Sassy one-liners.
0: So... (laughs) (laughs) Monsieur Philippe never received any kind of undergraduate diploma from any institution that we know of, although he did submit a dissertation called Principles of Hygiene Applicable in Pregnancy, Childbirth and Infancy, in which he spent 300 pages discussing occult means to help keep mother and baby healthy, which was accepted by the University of Cincinnati. (laughs) I love my hometown. (laughs) (laughs) You want to get in there? The University of Cincinnati. (laughs) And it remained in the university's medical library until nineteen ninety nine, when both the book and Philippe's long and the long dead Philippe's doctorate were revoked.
3: Yeah, well I still got my doctorate. You still- Suck
0: on that, Frenchie. Cheesy
3: <laughs> still- I mean, surrender I, monkey. I mean it's it's honorary from you know, the University of Cincinnati from you know, the undergrad program.
0: I don't think that's how it works, uh, Keith. Uh, Whatever,
1: what, okay. you're a, fine. A, Auxiliary. I, I just gotta say. I just gotta say. I don't even know you. I'll. I'll never eat chili and spaghetti again.
0: <laughs> I just do appreciate the Keith that you got your history degree through the use of a magical hat of psychic fluids and astral forces.
3: Oh, oh, astral forces. There <laughs> it is. I, just
0: know.
2: There it is. There I don't there know if sure I this. I just want to that. know if Keith can prescribe me oxys. <laughs> yeah. now,
0: oh, some... not that kind of doctor? Well, then never mind. It, it, now some... No, he was in France, not Florida. <laughs>
2: now,
0: somehow, this chubby little fucker with heavily lidded eyes and a big bushy mustache gained a reputation in aristocratic occult circles first in France, then Russia, as a miracle worker, able to use those psychic fluids and astral forces to rid people, especially attractive young noblewomen, who'd have thunk it, of various afflictions. Now, Duchess Milica introduced Monsieur Philippe to the Tsarina in 1901, and he informed her that with psychic forces and magnetism, he could change the sex of a baby in the womb. Now Nicholas, appeasing his wife, forced the St. Petersburg Military Medical Academy to grant Monsieur Philippe an official medical diploma to make it all look good, and soon Alex was again pregnant, with what Monsieur Philippe was certain to be a boy due to his ministrations.
3: So wait, he basically just grabbed his hat and said, hey Rocky, watch me pull a diploma out of my hat. That Pretty trick much. never works.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> the, <laughs> now hat, in re- the hat was magic, though. Yeah. yeah. In reality, after several weeks, Alexandra discharged a molar pregnancy, and Philippe was banished back to France, where he died several years later in disgrace. That's probably
1: all those magnets, <laughs> and that skyline, chili.
0: <laughs> Up yours, welcome, our at least we will see who cancels who. Oh God! And
1: then, and, and his last words—just because he knew what the future would bring—who day? <laughs> By the way, Gold
3: Star's better than Skyline, anyway. Mm.
2: Uh, nothing could possibly be worse than Skyline Chili. <laughs> no. I would rather get hit by a car than eat Skyline Chili. I would
1: rather go to Co- Covington, Kentucky, than go to Cincinnati ever. To stand so. around and wait
2: <laughs> for
0: violence to be done upon
2: me. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so, the two weren't done trying other means to secure a son. In 1903, they jointly sponsored the canonization of Seraphim of Sarov, an 18th century Staretz who Monsieur Philippe had gone on about repeatedly, known for working many hundreds of small local miracles, none of which were verified, and the man who had been dead a good 80 years. Still, Nick and Alex both bathed in the Sarova River at the spot where Seraphim had his hermitage and prayed whilst immersed in the sacred waters for a son. In January of 1904, Alexandra was once again pregnant. Now I can't say if it was Seraphim what done did it, but this time... It was the magnets... It, pff, things finally, just on a delay, yeah. <laughs> things finally worked out for Nick and Alex.
1: See, see, this it completely makes me think of, like, those late-night infomercials. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, Nick and Alex, it, it, imagine, like, 100 years later, Nick and Alexandra are up, and they're, they can't get to sleep. They got, like, 15 kids, you know, yeah. crying and stuff. Like, all right, okay, what are we going to watch? Well, oh, Copper, copper underwear.
0: <laughs> I mean,
1: and that's what's going to make you have a boy or a girl. You're, it's magnets. So, just wear this metal
0: band on your wrist. It's, it, you're actually not that far off because, like, the newspapers in St. Petersburg at this time were filled with weird miracle cures, mostly for venereal disease. Right. But it would just be like <laughs> bells you hang on your belt to keep the dick demons away, that kind yeah. of shit.
3: So I, I can almost, like, you know, I'll tell you the sex of your child. Oh, insert another four ninety nine, and I can
0: finish. <laughs> so this time, things finally worked out for Nick and Alex. On August 12, 1904, Alexandra gave birth to a baby boy named Alexei Nikolaevich. This birth, despite Philippe being banished, affirmed Alexandra's faith in the power of healers and mystics. But not all was well. The joy of both Nick and Alex and the country at large was finally to finally have a male heir was palpable but when the birth finally came, it didn't exactly go without a hitch. When the umbilical cord was cut, the baby's stomach kept bleeding for days, and it took over a week for the wound to clot. This was already known to medical science at the time as a dire warning sign. The new baby boy, the Tsarovich of Russia, the hope of the Romanovs for the future, carried the disease of hemophilia. Now hemophilia was known at the time and had been medically classified, but there was no known cure, or even an effective treatment. The average life expectancy of a hemophiliac in the year 1900 was 13 years old. The disease was a death sentence. Now, hemophilia is an inherited genetic disorder that impairs the body's ability to make blood clot, a process needed to stop both internal and external bleeding and avoid potentially catastrophic medical outcomes as a result of relatively minor medical injuries. Mike, I'm sure as paramedic, right. you well, encountered and, this. And, and, well, and
1: that's what I was just thinking about, is 13 seems about right. Mm-hmm. Because it's not so much the, the idea that, uh, okay, you, you cut a vein open and it's a gusher. It's the fact that you hit your, you hit your arm on the wall. Yeah. And, and who of us doesn't know that toddlers, huge heads, little bodies fall down? Well, so yeah. You fall down, you get a bruise. Whether or not you see the bruise, like we do, it doesn't matter. For a hemophiliac, that would be a death sentence. Yep, in 1905, it, that's just, a death sentence. It, so you'd completely and be the, it, 12 it's and not thir- good thir- now.
3: Yeah, yeah, twelve and thirteen year olds climbing a tree. Yeah. yeah.
0: So though she likely acquired it through a spontaneous mutation of her genetics, Queen Victoria of England was seen as the primary reason that this disease made its way into Europe's royal families in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Now, Victoria didn't herself suffer the effects of the disease, but she did pass it down genetically to her large brood of children, many of whom, if they didn't suffer from it themselves, were carriers, who then married into the other royal families of Europe, leaving a genetic time bomb for the ruling houses of Spain, Germany, Russia, and several other nations. Alexandra's brother had died young of hemophilia, as had her uncle, one of Queen Victoria's sons. She would go on to have nephews who would die young of the disease. Now, since this incurable condition threatened the life of the heir to the throne at a time when social stability in Russia was breaking down—more on that in a moment—the boy's condition was kept secret. His care was put in the hands of experts, that's in big old quotes, and soldiers and sailors whose primary job was to keep him from hurting himself at all, which for anyone out there who's had a kid or even babysat one or even been around people with kids— Or
3: familiar with the second Russian fleet.
0: You you know just how... (laughs) That is true. Yeah, maybe don't pick the Navy. What's a cavalry up
2: to?
1: You might be an army.
2: Actually, that might
0: be why they did so poorly is because all the good sailors were watching the (laughs) Tsarevich. So, but yeah, you know just how impossible that shit can be to prevent a young kid from hurting themselves. So Alex turned to other means. Faced with doctors who couldn't provide a cure, she turned into her religious faith, and she turned to every saint and starets and ritual that she could think of or was recommended to her, and this opened her up even more to the idea of the use of mystics and holy men and occult practitioners. Right? If hey. only
1: she stayed well, Lutheran. And... <laughs> Don't yeah. get me started.
3: <laughs> so now, it,
1: that said, uh,
0: it, um, never mind. So, keep, keep, keep. it didn't matter to her if it was new and uncomfortable. She was desperate. This was her baby, and that was the heir to the Russian throne. Combine that with an aristocracy already fascinated with the occult and mystics in general, who were more than happy to make recommendations, and the door has been thrown right open and is waiting for somebody to walk through it. And if a mystic hero walked through the door, now was the right time. In addition to the hemophilia issue with little Alexei, Nicholas had not exactly been doing a bang-up job of ruling. Russia had experienced about a decade of significant economic backsliding and was suffering from what we call stagflation, rising prices at a time of no economic growth or economic decline. Combine this with a peasantry that, though they had technically been freed by legislation in the early 1860s, were now probably worse off thanks to a banking and landowning system that was eager to take advantage of them and impoverish them further.
1: And if you're confused by the word stagflation, watch a William Devane video.
0: (laughs) This is true. Non-Slavic Russians were getting increasingly dissatisfied with the favoring of Slavic Christians in an increasingly nationalistic Russia. The growing industrial worker class was sick of poor working conditions, low pay, and little opportunity, combined with higher prices of lodging and food. Improvements in travel and communications were also making it a lot easier for revolutionary groups like the Marxists and the Zemstvo Union and student organizers to whip up support for populist and anti-monarchist causes. So in order to jumpstart the economy and try to regain some popularity back, Nicholas decided that a war was just what the doctor ordered to fix things and pick the fight with the growing industrial and imperial power of Japan. The problem was that in 1904 and 1905, during the Russo-Japanese War, to make a long story very short, the Russians on land and sea absolutely got their dicks kicked in. I would recommend you to our series on the Russian 2nd Pacific Squadron for an example of all the dick-kicking...
2: In. I want to alligator. self self-inflicted dick kicking. Quite a lot of more it. More yes. often than not, alligator-related dick kicking.
1: <coughs> Poisonous I snakes. Know. Yeah, points. It, it oh points. It, points. If you kill your roommate with uh, like, just like putting coal in his room, <laughs> <And> jacking the <laughs> humidifier
3: up. <laughs> yeah.
0: So the series it's, of it's the, the Japanese.
3: Japanese. Yeah. Wait, we're still on the river. <laughs> it's the Japanese.
0: It's torpedo boats. I swear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So the series of military defeats and subsequent further economic downturn was the straw that broke the camel's back, and a series of strikes and popular protests broke out throughout the nation. It started slow, but it really reached a fever pitch after a large crowd of marchers was fired upon in St. Petersburg on January 9, 1905, killing 234 protesters in what would become known as Bloody Sunday. The strikes, the marches, not the and, U2 song. No, different, different oh. Bloody Sunday, different Bloody Sunday from the 1972 Northern Ireland Bloody Sunday. There's been a lot of Bloody Sundays.
1: Uh, the 2000, uh, the 1916. So, you know, like
0: the nineteen sixteen Irish Bloody Sunday. Sunday's a day off, you know. I guess <laughs> you know it's good time to it's
1: it's a good time to get the government together and yeah. just like shoot people. And we, then you go. We it, just got out of we, church. We're good.
0: And then it's Sunday. Everybody's got a pretty good brunch menu going. You got yeah. somewhere to go afterwards? Yeah.
1: Well, I know I want to. I, well, I know personally in food service, I want to shoot people on Sunday, so yeah. I I want to get on with this. I'm okay with it.
0: Can confirm. Yeah. So the strikes, marches, and military mutinies went nationwide, and a spasm of violence killed as many as 15,000 people over the course of only a few months. By October of 1905, Nicholas was forced to agree to a series of reforms meant to alleviate the protests, and while these did do a pretty good job of slowing down the violence, there would be a power struggle between reformers and the newly created Duma, the National Legislature, and the Tsar himself, okay. who sought to maintain what he saw as divinely ordained, absolute autocratic power. These reforms were, however, not effective in granting the people what they really wanted and needed, so while the violence passed, the revolutionary undertones never went away. And, and they still,
1: wa- what they needed was
0: food. And they will come back to haunt the characters in our story. Now, what it illustrated to Nicholas and Alexandra was just how bad their situation could get, how precarious their position was, and the stability of that position depended so heavily on a son with a lethally incurable condition. In Nicholas and Alexandra Romanov's eyes, they needed a miracle, a way to keep their son alive, a divine touch to help them maintain their throne in the face of growing danger. Little did they know that their miracle would have big weird eyes, long hair and a bushy beard, a peasant's manner, and the predilections of a satyr. His time would come, But it's going to come in our next episode, part four of our series, where we'll be examining just how and why Grigory Rasputin and the Romanovs became so intertwined and why he would end up causing them no end of trouble.
2: Well, I mean, there was an end of trouble.
0: You know what I mean. (laughs) Oh, there was an end, all right. There was an end to the trouble. Okay, what did I say earlier about semantic arguments? (laughs) Don't don't back me in these (laughs) (laughs) corners.
1: Well, I was just sitting here thinking, you know, as I'm listening to your thesis, listening to everything that you've been saying this whole hour, and I'm thinking to
0: myself, this is Kyle's grandparents, right? (laughs) Okay, I know we've been through our theory long ago that Kyle is actually the lost princess Anastasia, but (laughs) I know he looks good for being 109th, but... (laughs) (laughs) It's It's his skin care. It is. It's his skin care. He moisturizes. He stays in his lane. He He stays moisturized. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so that's going to do it for this week. Um, We are, yes, going to be returning to Rasputin next time in a very, very big way. And the antics are going to pick up very, very quickly. And it's going to be a little bit tragic, but a lot of fun, too. Yeah, my, my man don't waste a lot of time. No, he does not. And he kind of sinks back into his old ways a little bit. Kinda. Uh, I'm, I'm comic understatement. <laughs> com- comic understatement, Keith. That's yeah. part of a podcaster's skill set. <clears throat> so. Super- it took me
3: this long to figure out that you were anti-semantic. <laughs> I- <laughs> nice.
0: <laughs> Way to go, Keith. I. <laughs> Way to go, man. You know what? You- well I done. can't thank you enough for that joke that's well done great. I am writing that down I <laughs> I already man I don't even wear the new balance anymore like
1: <laughs> oh that's old school like, you're going on. deep there
0: I just alright you guys finished the episode I'm depressed now. I'm just proud of you so, now we did, we did you're our boy
2: the coronation you know even, even before everybody is trampled to death uh, with the 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 cross of the Order of Saint Andrew, as he's and it's it's big. I mean, it's Flavor Flav style, this giant (laughs) cross. And as he's walking up the steps of the cathedral, the chain breaks and it hits every single marble stair, and there is not one other sound in the cathedral. And everybody just (laughs) kind of looks around, like that's not a bad sign, right? That's not good. We're gonna. This is gonna be fine, right? And then 1,400 people were stepped on to death because they wanted a cup. Yep. A cup
3: with a coin. Allegedly. Allegedly. Okay. Uh, but, Allegedly. I mean, that's what <laughs> yeah. It wasn't the cup. It was the cup with the coin.
2: Yeah, and then whenever we get a... Whenever they finally get uh, an heir, a male heir, uh, a sneeze could kill them.
0: Yeah. And, and you look at everything that was happening in, the, in that period, and it is a... It's a dress rehearsal to the dress rehearsal to the bad shit. Right. I yeah, mean, like th- this is
2: this is a the writing was on the wall style scenario. Mm-hmm.
0: It's it's just did anyone actually take the time who was who mattered did they take the time to stop and read it? And uh, no, they just decided to bring in a crazy guy with weird eyes and a huge dong and a series see what of, would happen.
2: Of crazy looking yeah mustachio I mean, bearded man.
3: It started with Monsieur Philip and it's, Philippe and,
2: yeah, here's the
0: thing. Which, is Monsieur Philippe was one of many. I, did, yeah. I, I only brought him up because I wanted to have an example, but I didn't mm-hmm. want to get bogged down in well, the story of all the weird mystics that were being brought through. It just so happens that they finally end up with one that, that sticks for a very, very specific well, reason. I don't know. It, it, you,
1: you say M- Monsieur Philippe was this one that you brought up. To, to, to kind of highlight this is also kind of, of the weirdest I, and the silliest. I, well, and see that's yeah. the that's the whole and, thing and is, the Frenchest, <laughs> well, the, the most unapologetically hon, French. Because hon, hon, hon. my whole thing is is at what point do you keep getting these and you
0: maybe y- it's us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where's the common denominator? Yeah. So. I'm, but we'll, we'll, next episode, we're going to do some exploration and see if they can actually pick up on that. Spoiler alert, they don't. Oh, but they do settle copper on...
3: Copper wristbands. The last guy told us lead. That's... Nice. <laughs> shit. <laughs>
1: shit. My bad.
3: <laughs> he, he said copper, but they were eating them.
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. What, uh,
1: what, what What is the 19th century version of the Kardashians advertising anything? Yeah. <laughs> the, the
2: Romanovs. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it was probably the Romanovs. Yeah. <laughs> They're just there because they were born into it. No so. discernible skill set. <laughs> so, yeah. so Famous we just for got- fucking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll discuss a lot of this next week. So uh, between next time that we come together to record, Chris, in the meantime, where can, uh, where can people find us out there? If you want to find us, you can drop us a line.
2: If you have any questions, concerns... Uh, any of, of course corrections that we always do mm-hmm. like we uh, always welcome
0: it. constructive criticism
2: even though we have yet to get any of those so we're batting a thousand fellas good oh, news yeah. we've never said anything wrong ever but if you do find something we got wrong you can email us at trrpod at gmail.com you can follow us on twitter at podcast you can follow us on instagram at trrpod if you want to find us on facebook look no further than just searching thieves rogues and renegades uh, and if you care to join us in Valhalla, you can go to www.patreon.com slash to become a patron today.
0: Absolutely. Uh so yes, yeah, so once before we wrap up today, uh, I want to once again thank Keith Volhop from the Thrifty Whiskey YouTube channel for joining us. And speaking of whiskey, Keith, yeah. I think we might have some tasting notes for the uh the dram that that Mike brought in. Wow, Mike.
3: My- yep. So Mike, what what did you have? Uh, so I- Unlike what we normally yeah, yeah. do on the show, we are completely blind, and I could see what Mike was pouring. Yeah, we knew what we were and, getting into. And it wasn't time. that bad, because I can actually still
1: see after drinking some.
2: <laughs> like everything we do on this podcast, it's all bass aquin,
0: so yeah. it's fucking good.
1: What we have is your standard fourteen ninety nine 99 bottle of uh, Evan Williams, uh, Black Label, from Kentucky,
3: so, it's um, a Kentucky straight bourbon,
1: and it, uh, I believe you said the proof point was 80 proof. Uh, it
3: is. Yeah, Evan Blackley. It is.
1: 43, uh, 43% alcohol by volume, 86 proof. 86, Which okay. is one of the things that I like about the tasting is that it reminds me of, um, you're probably the only one that remembers this, but uh, Jack Daniels at one point used to taste like this. Yeah, it was very similar back early '90s. Right.
3: I'm glad yeah. we
0: got hit with a well back in my day. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. well, it was like 1995. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it, <laughs> what the fuck? And, it, so, well, it, you,
2: do,
1: it, it, you do want it, it, parts it, it, from the Gen X Uncle Corner. So it, I know well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. and, and and that's my that's my tasting notes on it. And then okay. one of the things that I love about I love about Evan Williams is it tastes like Jack Daniels used to drink. Okay and the bottle looks very similar. Yeah, that's, well, uh, that's not a mistake. It does. Yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. not that yeah, that's on purpose.
3: Okay, so tasty notes that I got out of it, uh, slight notes slight nose of ginger, caramel, cinnamon spices, uh, slight hint of caramel and good oak tannin spices as it goes down and the finish is actually not that long. I would expect something a little bit longer with an eighty-six proof. It's pretty crisp. Yeah, it it goes it goes down uh, pretty smooth, pretty quickly. Um, it's a good sipper, great cocktail maker.
1: Well, and I gotta say, honestly, that that's why you're thrifty whiskey. I know what I like. I'm I'm an artist. I know what I like, <laughs> and you're good at this. Find that's
3: what you love and let what, it kill you yeah that's what we look at in the show is you know we don't we don't tell you what to buy. We tell you what you might like, and we describe it in a way that uh, we try to get people to realize, you know, oh, that's the taste profile I'm looking for. I'm gonna to have to try that or you know what? I'm not really into that flavor profile. I'll go on to something else. and that's and little- did we do that um, how do we get a hold of you on? So you can visit us at thriftywhiskey.com. That's our website. Uh, we are on YouTube at Thrifty Whiskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter
0: at Thrifty Whiskey. Nice and simple. And that's a little preview of the kind of stuff you can find, uh, the kind of content they're putting out. It's good stuff. Helps, uh, helps make you a little more informed as to your choices. Makes you a uh, more intelligent whiskey consumer. So, uh, yes, again, thank you, uh, Thank you for joining us Keith and for filling in for Kyle and he will be back next time as we explore part 4. No we already killed it. Really? Will he be back or will he okay. still be in Germany? We got another one working in the 2. I got I, is I
3: heard he was getting deported. <laughs> what if he
2: gets stuck there? <laughs> I, I, like, I the, he did have he a He gets stuck there. Maris. He's
1: he's German and he's slight.
2: I want to trade I want to trade he's Kyle slight. for Britney Griner. He'd, straight up. No. No. Straight no. up. It, well, it's not even the same country, dude. <laughs> you, you, but he's still an American citizen.
0: And we've had Kyle's lifelong desire to be a star in the WNBA. So it, it, right. I think. Yeah, I was going to say. Perfect, right? But you there know, is
2: nothing funnier to me than seeing Kyle in a gulag. I don't know what. <laughs> he is clearly the funniest oh of the four God. of us. Well, five of us. But like, if anything he, hilarious is going to happen, it's. To you Kyle. think I've gone dark? <laughs> like, just. It'll just be a, just one wacky adventure after another. <laughs> All right, so yeah, he's, we'll, we'll he's out... going
3: to come back saying, "I was in the Stalag. I saw Bob Crane. It was real.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I have received revelation." <laughs> you're he gonna will... have another. You're gonna have another acolyte there, Michael. Oh,
1: yeah. God! Yeah. Someday I'll visit him okay. <laughs> if, he, if he gets he, if he gets to Comstock, I'll, I'll come.
0: <laughs> so so hopefully next time, Kyle will be back here to defend himself when we bully him as opposed to today. As long as they don't find the vape pens. And hopefully you'll be back next time, too. We'll catch you for part four. We're halfway, everybody. Keep the faith. There's, das more, Rasputin. There's more Rasputin coming. Nostrovia, everybody, and hold fast.